You're very good, bud. Omni Platform Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Existential Warfare, the podcast that's about finding good in this shitty world, but not in like a weird wellness crystals way. Uh, Just some nice conversations with excellent friends about uh, things that they love, things they find hope in, or or just the bad. The world sucks a lot, and sometimes there's, there's no hope in some things. But that's not that episode. Today, I am absolutely blessed to be joined by the person with the greatest username on the internet, Matt, at Normal Matt. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. And so what I wanted to focus on for this episode of Existential Warfare is beer brewing, because you are, as, as far as I know, the greatest beer brewer in North America. I hope so. <laughs> and you always have had uh, incredibly interesting and engaging things to, to say about it and just being immensely knowledgeable. Hell yeah. I got a beer in front of me. I'm chasing away a little hangover with it. Nice, so. nice. I have a beer as well in honor of this episode. I got the cheapest 12-pack at the Speedway. Um, Beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, because beer's fucking expensive now. Um, I don't know how, how much did that cheap 12-pack cost in the States, because it's much more expensive in Canada. Oh, yeah. it's uh, It was 9 bucks uh, for a 12-pack of Bush, which is... Two years ago, that would be like five ninety nine. So uh-huh. in Canada, we're kind of like in a unique position in the craft world, craft beer. I mean, mm-hmm. beer is very expensive here. So it's twenty four or five dollars to get a twelve or fifteen case of Blue Ribbon. What's happened now is a lot of craft breweries are offering twelve or fifteen cases cheaper than Budweiser, Blue Ribbon, stuff like that. So we're in a position in Canada, at least in BC, where we are like more directly trying to compete with the macro market. Yeah, that makes sense to me because if if there was anything, it, it, it could be called just like death piss beer. Uh, and if that was like $10 a 12 pack, you know, just like, I'd snap that right up. It's, but... it's really funny because the branding is always hilarious. Um, I don't want to say any like brands directly, but it's always like one word. And it doesn't want to come off as like, I don't know, any polite way to say this fruity. Yeah. Because it wants to appeal to like a blue collar guy who says slurs and drinks 50 beers a week. Well, I thought the naming convention, uh, maybe it's just here in the States, but there's there's always like a whimsical quality to it. Like the local, like the local beer breweries have stuff like Sunny Shark Ale, you know, try and, you know, the shark is sitting on a lounge chair by the pool with the beer in his hands so there is a kind of philosophy around naming beer a lot of people take it very seriously they'll name a beer like perfume like bright dawn or something like that like it's very self-serious names Mm -hmm. other places will outright reference like movies and music like directly and then get a cease and desist letter but like (laughs) trying to play on that like (laughs) millennial nostalgia 
and you know like a lot of people just want to be fun like i'm i'm in the camp where i try and name things that are fun or funny or memorable or it's a little story you can tell about the beer oh i don't know if i i should dox myself but i did name a a uh, a beer after the song freebird <laughs> it was just called freebird it was um Basically, it was a sour beer, and I named it that because sour beers have kind of become the new IPA because they're very, very approachable to people who wouldn't normally like beer, but like the brewery experience. So people will come in and they'll ask, they won't even look at the menu. They'll just be like, do you have a sour? So that kind of became a joke that that's like people like going to a concert and screaming free bird at the band, to, but in a brewery. Um, so I'm curious to how you got into brewing beer as a hobby, and I, I assume... It, it started as a, you know, like me, a drinking enthusiast and wanting the better stuff. Well, I, I, I was a line cook for years and years, basically 13 to 30. Um, when I was 27, I was in welding school. You know, I was only working cooking part time and I wanted to get drunk cheaper and faster. So I started making mead, like honey wine. And that kind of like, you know, planted the bug a little bit. You know, I dabbled in beer a little bit after that, but it was never good. I could never get it quite right. There was always issues with temperature control. I didn't understand yeast. I didn't understand a lot of the processes. The beer would either not be like, just have to dump the whole thing. Or it was like, I'm going to drink it and get drunk, but I'm not going to offer it to anyone else. At the start, right before the pandemic hit, I was working at a restaurant. And it was like one of the worst restaurant jobs I'd ever had. But it paid a little bit better, so it was like golden handcuffs. They kept me coming back. What ended up happening is a friend gave me a book, and this must have been like two or three months before COVID hit, about beer brewing. And what it was, it was going through all the processes, but then it would have a commercial-style beer and how to make an, a clone recipe, essentially. Yeah. And like beers that are like, it had a bunch of Sierra Nevada stuff, which I can get in BC. So like I'm like, mm. oh, I can just buy this beer then make my batch and like kind of compare and contrast or like I can tweak stuff and like see like how these ingredients work based on that, which was a very homebrewer way of doing things. Kvaik was new to the scene, which is a strain of Norwegian yeast that like drastically cuts down your time. So it became from this point where I was able to make beer faster and faster and faster. So I'm making more volumes, I'm making more mistakes and then I can kind of identify those mistakes. Yeah. So I remember I was leaving the homebrew store um a bunch of grain bunch of yeast bunch of hops and i was getting on a bus and i get a call from my chef and he's like oh you hear about this covid thing and i was like this is weird he's calling me on my day off and i was like yeah i've like i have cursory knowledge of it because like it wasn't like a big deal yet and he goes if you think you're gonna get a day off because of this you have another thing coming and a wow. week later he had to close the restaurant <laughs> good and so from that point i was unemployed for about eight months i was on serb which mm -hmm. uh in canada i think it was less than shit i can't remember how much it was it wasn't much it was less than minimum wage but like enough that i could pay for stuff and i could buy beer once in a while but what i could do was make beer and i got very good at making a lot of beer for very cheap mm -hmm. i was making something like 15 gallons a week at one point, the cheapest batch I ever did was a red ale. And you kind of, I kind of taught myself like the comedy of scale of brewing. Cause like I bought everything in bulk for this red ale and then I priced it out. The beer itself was only like 75 cents per bottle, oh, which yes. was awesome. So like I was able to get blasted on this and 
you know, eight months of that, just making beer. And that was also like, I give it to my friends and we all get on discord and get drunk on beer. And like, obviously, cause you're drinking, it's intoxicating, but it's a very intoxicating feeling when your friends are like getting blasted on your beer. And then they're like, Oh, like if I bought this in a liquor store, I would be stoked. This is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like if I needed groceries, I just leave like a 12 thing, of homebrew on my doorstep and trade it with my friends who have cars to get stuff for me. Yeah, I just kind of got in. It was very like community orientated for me. And then eight months into being unemployed, I get a call from my chef and he goes, you're coming back to work, but we can only offer you three days a week, which Mm -hmm. like still was more than served. So I was like, that's totally fine and fair. I don't mind working three days a week. You know, I'm climbing up the walls here. So we finished that conversation with him. Maybe five, 10 minutes later, he calls back and says, actually, uh, I'm only going to be able to give you two weeks, which was drastically less than serve uh, or two days a week. And but that you're just going to have to deal with it. You're, that's what you got to do to get your foot in the door. And so we finish up talking and I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, what the fuck have I been doing for the last three, four years for this guy? Like I've missed weddings, I've missed funerals, busted my back basically for a job that like, you know, had me at like my lowest point in my life. Yeah. That's when I was posting a lot too, because what I found is like <laughs> there was a correlation with how miserable I was like in my life with how good I was at posting. Like it literally like was like the dad who gets yelled at work and comes home and like hits his whole family. That was me, but I would just like take it out on weirdos online. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I I have attempted to brew beer once with my sister's ex-boyfriend. It was fine, but we we messed up the fermentation, so it was just like everybody like we gave out a bunch of beer to to you know all the friends and had a perfectly like family-oriented time sipping like very fresh, pretty good non-alcoholic beer. It was like 2%, something like that. Was it a Cooper's kit? I don't remember. Uh this was a while ago. Like it it, it, it it's a- it's a big tin can full of like goop. That sounds about right. And and like the plastic bucket to to have it ferment in, to cook it all in. So I started on Cooper's kits, um, because they're cheap as fuck. Mm-hmm. And like the first time you make it, it's like, all right, that's okay ish beer, and then you get a little like funky with it, you start adding fruit or juice or whatever to it to like try and make it into like, oh, you know, like uh, a raspberry blonde ale. And then I didn't realize this when I first started, like, is how fucking important yeast is. You don't make beer. Yeast makes beer. You make wort. Mm-hmm. You know, you're making the environment for the yeast to make the beer. So I didn't realize how important yeast was. And all those Cooper kits, that yeast is like, it sucks. It sucks so bad. Then I started using different yeast. I started playing around with a lot of saisons and adding hops and different ingredients and you know, fresh malt and stuff like that. And yeah, I kind of like evolved from the Cooper's kits into all grain brewing, which is, you know, its own thing. Um, you've mentioned a little bit about uh, it already, talking about sort of the, the rewards with your friends and sort of just the, the path you were on with your life at the time. But I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about, you know, what, what you found rewarding about the hobby as, you know, brewing beer specifically and... You know, what? what is it that keeps you coming back? Is it just kind of what, what we've already talked about? Or is there there's something a little bit more ephemeral to it? Uh, I'm curious. So there's like this quote from Garrett Oliver. He's the head brewer of uh, Brooklyn Brewing. 
um, in New York, he's talking about brewing and he's talking about how it's always an accident when you get into beer making. It's, it's nobody plans to be a brewer. You have a different plan. You're going to have a different job. And then you just discover beer and mm-hmm. you like beer. But the thing about beer is unless you have a lot of money, it's, you know, it's going to make you broke. So you start making beer to save money. And that's kind of when the bug bites you. It's always a diverted life plan. Like there's no high school graduate who's maybe there is, but they're a freak who's like, I'm going to go work for a brewery. And for me, the, the th- that was exactly it. like I was on a different path. You know, I was doing culinary and I had been a graphic designer for a time. I had worked as a welder or I had my welding level C. I had worked in a hospital. Um, I just kept coming back to cooking because I was, despite hating it, I was a very, very good line cook. As a line cook, I had won awards for restaurants and stuff like that. So I, I was good at my job. I just hated it. And then there's with beer, there's kind of like that gastro side that I like, the restaurant industry, but there's also this relinquish of control. And when you're in a restaurant, it's like you have, every motion you make has to be for a reason, right? Everything is very in control or you're fucked. Mm -hmm. If I fuck up a beer, there's no adding salt or cream to it to fix it. I am just completely relinquishing control to the yeast. You know, I can make an environment for the yeast and I kind of know like how that's going to wind up. But at the end of the day, I don't have my hands on the wheel. And like, this sounds a little hippy dippy. I was talking to Brianna about this the other night where it's like, there is something I can't explain that I really enjoy doing that. And you think about beer as we know it, like, you know, like humans have making been making a, a beverage with a cereal mash for like 10,000 years. There are people who have posted theories that actually we stopped being hunter and gatherers, not because bread because you know fuck bread that's not as good as like hunting and (laughs) gathering but because it's easier to sit in one place and make beer you know and you get into thing i think the ballad of gilgamesh gilgamesh is tamed with two jugs of beer beer is something that happens on every continent we figure it out you know like be that you know cereal mash in china ten thousand years ago or peruvian people making chicha and realizing that women have um a higher concentration of amylase in their saliva so they would chew the corn and be the chicha makers there, there's this article i always bring up uh there's a phenomenon called hop creep hops are added into a beer like during a dry hop stage to for aromatic and flavor but what ends up happening is they contain the same enzymes as the barley so they'll break down the sugars a little bit more which can cause another fermentation that can cause Overcarbonation, which can lead to explosions, or it can cause um, diacetyl, which will make the beer taste kind of like butter, not in a pleasant way. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we only had the tools to measure this and to figure out what was happening. We didn't have a name for it until like 2015 or 2016 when the hazy beers really started to take off. Someone found an article from, I think, 1890, where a brewer is discussing hop creep. He's like, I can't prove it, but I think this is what is happening. So like humans, for whatever reason, we intrinsically are very good at making beer to get fucked up. And, you know, it's very cool that I get to participate in this very old tradition. Something I learned in my research uh, several hours ago is that hops is actually part of the cannabis family, which yep. I don't which I, I don't know ha- has any bearing on anything whatsoever, but I definitely nodded and wrote pot in my notebook and underlined it. <laughs> so there, there's, 
there's a flavor and tasting note actually um it's really prevalent in hops called citra and a hop called mosaic at least that i've perceived and it's just called dank and that's what it means it smells <laughs> like marijuana i actually got a sample from a company they extract like the terpenes like the flavor and the aromatic compounds from marijuana and like leave the thc and cbd behind and use it for other stuff but they're left with like this like basically essential oil that just tastes and smells like pot it's totally mm -hmm. edible and they've been trying to sell it to breweries so i made a light lager with um pineapple express and blackberry kush that's awesome yeah it was really good so you started out as a hobbyist a, a dedicated hobbyist but this this kept growing, right? You know, you, you eventually got a job at a brewery and kind of got to see not just the, the larger scale aspects and, and being able to work your craft on that end, but you also got to see the, uh, the, the business side of things. Um, what, what, how did you make that transition from, from hobbyist to, to professional brewer? So like literally the day I got off and like I had that chef be like an asshole to me over the phone. I was like, all right, fuck this. And I walked downtown because there was a brewery in our town that was hiring for a bartender. And I go in and just print it off a resume, sit down with the owner. And I'm like, I will be a bartender in exchange. I want to learn the brew side. So I worked 12, 13 hour days, you know, because I would come in, brew with them, then like go change my clothes and serve beer until, you know, midnight. And I just did that. And more and more, he kept taking his hands off the wheel and giving me more processes to do. And then they would come to me and ask me questions, because they were a fairly new brewery. They would ask me questions about, you know, what I think we should do, because, you know, I was the one who was interacting with the customers on the daily. They weren't. So I had more insight into our guests. After about a year of him, like, just giving more and more control over to me, he just said, you know what, like, your beer is <laughs> rating better than mine in a lot of ways. So like, I'm just gonna, you're, you're head brewer now. Damn, that's great. How was the head brewer process? Did you feel like you were thrown in the deep end somewhat or was it just like, I already run this place? So I did do like an online course just to like sharpen some stuff I already know, but in a lot of ways I was thrown in the deep end. But the thing about the brewing community is there is a huge sense of camaraderie. There is very strict. You don't shit talk another brewer. You don't shit talk another brewer unless they're abusing people. You know, everybody's friends with everybody. Yeah. So it was totally acceptable for me to call up or text another brewer in town to be like, I am having a problem. I don't know how to fix it. And they would take time out of their day and show me how to fix it. That's incredible, considering I have to imagine that it's incredibly competitive between any any kind of beer brewer stuff it's competitive for sales but when it comes to the guys who are actually like making the beer or serving the beer you know we we all hang out we all go for beers we all get trashed anybody's welcome to come in and look at my recipe book or vice versa right like yeah we're all trying to do our own thing everybody's pretty respectful that's awesome i i have to imagine uh, most of the people that you're talking to are also like not getting you know, percentages uh, of, of the sales uh, or anything not like that? Not necessarily. There was, there's one guy who I, I work for now because um, I quit my previous job after, well, I didn't quit the, they closed, not by m my fault. It was victim of COVID. So I went to work for this guy, but previously, like, you know, he would answer any question I had for him and he's been in the industry longer than I've been alive. So I made this 
transition to go work for him because it was an opportunity to mentor under someone who's been making beer longer than I've been alive. But he would just come in and have beers and I'd be like, hey, how do I do this? And he'd just lay it out all for me. That's awesome. I'd be curious to learn a bit more about what the structure of a brewery is like, because it's, you know, obviously I'm sure it, it requires uh, a lot of people uh, if you need to make kind of regular batches and you need to make sure, well, I don't know necessarily a lot of people, but a lot of effort um, to, to make sure that the batches are hitting because you can't have, you know, batches fuck up too much or, you know, you can't be out of beer. So breweries are a comedy of scale in that the bigger the operation you have, the more manpower you're going to need, the more, you know, people you're going to have to hire, but also the more money you're going to make. The more beer you can make, the more money you will make, period. It is basically you have your brew day, so you will, you know, you'll make your cereal mash, you'll mix uh, cracked barley, sometimes other stuff with uh, water held at a certain temperature and what's called a mash tun and what happens there is the malted barley has been allowed to sprout before it's kilned and that leaves enzymes behind because those are the enzymes that are breaking down the starch the grain to feed the plant but we stop that those enzymes are still there the water is held at a certain temperature to activate those enzymes so it turns starch into sugar so if you've ever put flour in water and it's kind of milky that's starch if you added amylase which naturally occurs in barley it's going to turn into a sweet liquid you then take that what's called wort at that point out of the grain, rinse the grain, um, and yeah, you have wort, which is just like the sweet liquid, and you boil it. That's to get rid of undesirable flavor compounds, uh, caramelize some of the sugar as well, primarily to sanitize it. The most important thing in brewing is goddamn sanitation. It has to be completely aseptic. You don't want like yeast competing with anything. Um, you know, for every one day of brewing we do, it feels like there's two or three days of cleaning involved. Yeah. But then you boil that, you're going to add your hops. That's going to add some bitterness and some of those flavors, depending on when you add them. Hops are also antimicrobial. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's an extra layer of protection because they will, like, help fight off contaminants. Then you're going to cool that down, add it to a fermenter with some yeast. Fermentation is going to take anywhere from four days to a month, depending on what yeast you're using. You're going to cool that down. That's going to make all the solid material, like uh, the yeast that's in suspension in the liquid, drop out. You're going to take that. You're going to put it in what's called a bright tank or a conditioning tank. It can get very cold. It's shaped a certain way. And so at that point, you carbonate it. And, you know, if it's going into cans, it goes into cans. If it goes into kegs, it goes into kegs. Uh, I know you don't want to shit talk anybody, and it sounds like with the cleaning requirements involved, you can't get away with having a uh, Dickensian shitty uh, brewery for very long. I mean, I imagine it's 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 hard work and it's a a job that requires a lot of focus. But I'm curious if you can. How hard is it? What is it like to work in the beer industry? Is it is it something that pays okay on the lowest rung of whatever the ladder is there? You know, what, what's, what's your take on, on the sort of labor conditions of a brewery? Not necessarily yours. So I make pretty good money right now because I'm in a production facility. So you'll always get paid a little bit more if you do production brewing. Because that just means like you're making a lot of beer for liquor stores, bars, restaurants, stuff like that. You don't necessarily have a tap room. 
uh, we have a small one. So I make more than I did as a line cook. It's also a much more respectful environment than it was in a line cook. And I'm very ideologically involved with beer. So my tolerance for bullshit is maybe a little bit higher than everybody else's. That being said, every brewer I talk to who is not an owner is like, we have to start unionizing on some scale because what we're finding is we're a lot like it's the same as ever, any industry like people are being pushed farther and farther and you know the pay doesn't reflect that you know we pizza party is a big joke in breweries right now mm-hmm. you know rather than getting paid more they're gonna throw a pizza party <laughs> the classic i'm very fortunate that i have a very fair and cool boss mm-hmm. who would rather you know have a good environment to work in than squeeze a couple extra pennies out of me that being said you know like there is some issues in the industry it's an industry that attracts a lot of maybe wealthy people who just want to own a business you know like a lot of like brewers i've talked to who've had problems it's like you know some rich guy and then he like opens a brewery because he likes to hang out in breweries and Mm -hmm. he home brews and he can't brew for shit so he hires a head brewer, but he's giving them these dog shit recipes from when he was a home brewer. And he's just like this abusive tyrant or whatever. And like a lot of times, like where the issues and snags are being hit, it's not necessarily like the people who have their boots on the floor. It is ownership, um, which I mean, we need at least some of these larger scale, like craft breweries to start unionizing so they can start setting the precedent for like what we're going to get paid on the smaller scales. And, you know, but one thing in breweries is every single brewery has fantastic benefits. Okay. Is there any particular reason for that? Or is it just... It's just just something that we all fought for and it's an industry standard now. And I have a fucking immaculate benefits package. Uh, That's great. Uh, Of course, I am in favor of unionization across the board. But it seems, if not unique to brewing, it is certainly a special the passion and the camaraderie and the knowledge you can't learn overnight, but you can't just, you know, hire a, a worker for half the price and get, and get what you want uh, for the demands of the brewery. I imagine. No, like if you're, if your goal is to make award winning beer, like, and you hire, you know, you know, maybe someone with less experience and your attitude is like, well, I'll just pay them, you know, $38,000 a year mm-hmm. that you're you're gonna lose more by not hiring someone who's competent right yeah when you start dumping you know batches or worse when bad batches make it to market something I'm curious about and uh, I apologize because I know I sprung this on you like two hours ago but I've been curious about the the story behind anchor brewing but I know that they unionized about three years ago and now they're closing but i'm curious to what your insight is 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 there anything going on with anchor brewing or some kind of context that is is not immediately apparent in this story unionization is good i think co-op brewery would be fucking phenomenal i would support that a thousand percent um anchor brewing they're not unique in what's happening right now. So COVID hits three years ago and everything shuts down. If you were a small operation with less overhead, you might've been safe. You just have to pivot to kind of distribution sales. So like liquor stores, Mm -hmm. if you're a distribution 
facility like anchor is i believe a big chunk of your business model is tied into being able to sell kegs to bars and restaurants yeah. all the bars and restaurants are fucking closed so that's like you know 60 70 percent of your income source just gone it's i believe it's one of those situations where COVID happens you know you're throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to figure out what works. Vaccines roll out and basically every bar, restaurant, everybody I know in the service industry, it's like sigh of relief. You know, things are going to go back to the way they were. And about a month or two after everyone has like their first shot, we're like, shit, like it's not going back because we didn't really take into account like how consumers were going to change in not post it because you know it's still a pandemic but like how it was going to change for them when they were able to go outside again and a lot of places didn't really think that that like that was going to happen like it would just go back to the way it was and so like what a lot of people including you know my previous job found out was like all of a sudden we're finally on the other side of this thing and it's like oh shit um my business plan is obsolete quick update about the anchor brewing company it seems that while what Matt says here is true, there's also a sense that when Sapporo purchased Anchor Brewing Company, they did so with an intention to run Anchor into the ground. So take from that what you will. Yeah, at least it seems to me, at least here in America, that the people who were going back to bars and restaurants were more the type to just go to Chili's and get, you know, a pitcher of Michelob rather than necessarily kind of delving into craft brew. I imagine that was hit a little harder. Uh, you can't do keg deliveries to people in their apartments, stuff like that. So, Oh, so what we found, um, and like, this isn't me talking about my ass. Like I've read articles and talked to other brewers and like, this is like mm -hmm. the consensus of the brewing industry. This is the consensus of like anyone who's liquor primary is holy shit. People drink differently now. Like in three years, people completely changed their habits. So what we talk about now is the complete experience because people don't bar crawl anymore. And like, you know, if I had to like answer why off the cuff, I'd say, you know, like it's not the safest to like go to a bunch of different locations, right? Yeah. You know, so what we find now is you need to offer the complete experience. You need food, you need a patio, you need, you know, people need to be able to bring their pets, their kids, you, know, you need some kind of games, you need the complete experience. And what we found is a brewery can't have bad beer because people know what bad beer tastes like. They can have good beer or they can have great beer. But we have found that people will gravitate towards somewhere that the beer is good or even just okay, but the experience is better overall. So, you know, places with phenomenal, like, the best beer you've ever had, but it's a little hole in the wall tap room, you know, they're done. They're cooked. Yeah. And, you know, like I was in, in a, or the owners of my previous job were in this position where it's like, we just realized this and then their lease comes up and they're like, and like a lot of breweries are in the same position where their leases are coming up. You know, they've taken out more loans than they can handle and people just aren't coming out in droves like they thought or like their business model is now incompatible with how people drink. And it's like, shit. I can handle, you know, the debt I've got, or I can walk away with a little bit, um, four or five more years on a much more expensive lease. Like that's a, that's, that's a Russian roulette, right? I'm a, curious a little bit about your, your current situation. Is it any different from uh, where you worked before? I know you've talked a bit about it already. Um, I want to get Matt, uh, Matt, the brewer as he is now. 
right now I'm working in what's called a production facility, which is just, you know, it's a big facility where we make a lot of beers for bars, restaurants, liquor stores, stuff like that. Um, and it's, it's great. Like I'm training underneath a guy who's been making beer longer than I've been alive, which is like for an industry this young is like unique because like craft beer wasn't popping off until like the eighties. So I, I am in this unique position and that's amazing. Um, you know, it's making a lot of loggers and canning a lot of stuff and kegging a lot of stuff and like, you know, making sure that orders are being met. The biggest difference I tell people is when I was doing, you know, small batch brewing in this little downtown bar, it was fun because like, you know, there are small batches. I could just come in and I had the freedom to throw spaghetti at the wall and just, I read about a new ingredient or a new technique. So that's what I'm doing. And that's very addictive, but in the production facility, the addictive property that I found is, you know, it's very addictive that you hit all your numbers and the beer is the exact same as the last beer and like all your cleaning is done on time and all your kegs went out on time, you know, like you get into this different rhythm that's very, very addictive. Are you are you producing more beer there or is it just a, a, a need for greater consistency in general because that's what people expect? producing more beer and like a production facility is going to be more consistent i was brewing five barrel batches at my previous job we now have 25 and 50 barrels where i am now uh, i remember one time during one of your many beer rants you were talking about how at the huge facilities just the gargantuan facilities there is a need to make sure the alcohol content is always like decimal point perfect every time and so that also kind of like i don't want to say saps the creativity because you're you're just making bud light there but there are concerns for for something like that like i'm sure it that's that is a you know a, a great concern for your brewery as well or your production facility there's a little bit more wiggle room like we will mix up ingredients once in a while um, mm -hmm. we have the freedom to do that just because of the scale and how we present ourselves we're not sweating if it's off like 0.02 percent or whatever where it's like you know, you're working at Budweiser and suddenly the Bud Light is like slightly, you know, like 0.002 stronger. Like that's red alarm, right? Like the guy who's been drinking it for 50 years is going to notice that this batch is different. These big facilities, they do stuff like they'll buy 10 years worth of hops because hops are varietal and seasonal like wine grapes. So they'll buy as much of them as they can just to like keep consistency over the next decade, which is crazy. The way I, I describe it is... You know, macro brewing is really good engineering. Like, I, I fucking admire it. It's really good engineering. There's not a lot of creativity. There's not a lot of actual art or gastronomy happening. Shifting gears a little bit, I'm, I'm very curious about what you said about how sours have kind of overtaken IPAs. Do you think that there's any particular reason for that? Or is it just sort of like just the, the trends and the tastes? And And I'd also be curious to hear... Your general thoughts on IPAs, just because there's such a huge meme now, it seems that like everybody who wants to talk about beer mentions hating IPAs, but you know, they're immensely popular. So it is interesting, but like IPAs are still like the most popular beer in the world by a lot. Um, there's such a massive umbrella of beers now, because it's not just like the English style IPA, you have West Coast IPAs, you have hazy IPAs, you have Belgian IPAs, like it's this massive umbrella of beers. Hazy IPAs are by far like the most popular IPA right now, which they're fucking delicious. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Sours are kind of unique because they came up very, very quickly. 
like a fruited kettle sour. Again, like sours is this massive umbrella of beer. It's been around for years. Like, give me like a lambic barrel aged sour and I'll fucking destroy it. But like quick soured, like where the lactobacillus is added in the kettle and then you boil it once it's soured the beer has become very, very popular. And the reason for that is they're usually very, very light. They don't have like kind of that beery taste. It's more like, oh, it's it's like a fermented Capri Sun. So it's very approachable. It's very crushable, very drinkable. And I think people like the brewery experience, but they get there and they feel kind of like silly ordering like a cider or a glass of wine. So I think sours, like they're included in the experience, right? That makes perfect sense. The the only sour I can remember, um, I had like maybe three weeks ago when a friend came by and she was super into sours. So I was just like, we'll get the local sour. And it was excellent. And the like kind of like shift in this as well, because like, you know, it was very like, you know, let's just make the most sour, most fruity tasting thing is now that what we saw with IPAs where we're much more careful about how we use hops and where we use hops and how we use them. Um, we see this now with souring is people are being a little bit more careful, a little bit more thoughtful. It used to just be an arms race to make the most sour beer you could, which actually, you know, IPAs went through that where it's why they have a bad rap is because we went through this arms race like pre-2015 where it was just like, let's make the most alcoholic, most fucking bitter, disgusting IPA we possibly can. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we'll call it like Skullfucker and it's 10% and like it's more bitter than the human tongue can understand. Sours went through something similar where it was this arms race of like, let's just make this really fucking nasty sour beer. But now we're kind of like hitting this point where we're being a little bit more thoughtful. Different lactobacillus cultures will throw different flavors. I really like um, using yogurt starters for a sour because it does give it a little bit of that yogurty kind of funk and you throw a little blueberry on top of that. You're just drinking an adult gogurt. <laughs> that sounds amazing. If you just had a beer called adult gogurt. If you were allowed to have that. Sell so well until you got a cease and desist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just be like, oh, I got the good shit in the trunk of my car. Getting into the latter pie-in-the-sky, hippy-dippy part of the podcast. It's, it's something that feels kind of very intrinsic. Talking about drinking, camaraderie, and beer. Like, it feels something that everybody already knows. But... I'm curious to your thoughts on, A, what the beer experience is, like in, in the brewery sense and like the dream kind of like tap room when everybody was just going there and kind of like getting into the different the notes and the flavors and enjoying it on that level. What is it about the beer and brewery experience that is so appealing? It's not like it's the the only thing that exists in in the realm of food and drink that kind of tries to exemplify that but it feels like breweries and beer is a stands apart a little bit from that just because it's something that everybody enjoys having one every once in a while this this is a pro alcohol podcast we're not going to discuss uh you know alcohol problems and there's there's a fantasy around it and a a, a kind of dream like what is appealing about that? What's what is different from, you know, uh, a winery or something like that? Is 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 that a fair question? Breweries are fun and they're accessible. The second part is massive because I can make the best fucking beer in the world. I'm only going to be able to charge like six, seven bucks a pint for it. Right. Same as everybody else. 
make the best bottle of wine in the world, suddenly I'm charging $300 a glass, right? There is, it's very blue collar approachable, but you're still like experiencing a high quality, right? It's fun, it's cool, and it's just nice. It's unique that you can get, you can be a blue collar person and still like experience like a premium product. Whereas, you know, like if you're a blue collar person, you might get one nice bottle of wine a year, or one nice bottle of scotch per year. You, you can suck back beer all weekend and not, you know, live in abject poverty. My interpretation of it is, you know, similar to yours, where because it's so widespread, like we've talked, not just with the the history and the, the possible impact, but you just can't argue with what you see every day. It's just like, it's fun to drink a, a couple of beers with your buds, you know, and being able to have this kind of like extra sensational experience on top of it to make you think more. And there, there's something super compelling about the broadness of it, right? It feels like generally the beer drinker's attitude is like, yes, I would prefer to drink a nicer beer, but I'm not above a 12-pack of Bud Light. It's actually a meme in a lot of, like, on, like, brewers, like, meme pages and, like, subreddits as well as, like, even just talking to brewers, it's a meme. It's like, yeah, we like to drink Miller High Life. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we go for. I think, like, people like breweries as well because it, it is a return to normalcy that's how we drank for fucking forever right up until prohibition prohibition hits and then these previous to that though there was a brewery on every corner it was some guy from europe and he's like i gotta come to america and make beer and make it how i like it and then that's what you did you had a brewery on the street corner and you got a growler filled and that was your that's how you got beer you get into like prohibition then world war ii you kind of enter into like the 60s older generations they were very big on what we kind of call microwave dinner culture where things being the same is more appealing than you know something being good the same thing happened with bread right like it used to be like you go to the bakery you get a loaf of bread and you knew the guy behind the counter you knew his kids he sent you a christmas card every year you talk to him and you know, you have a relationship with them and they make the bread every day fresh for you and you buy, go there every couple of days and buy bread. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, this pre-cut shit in a plastic bag shows up that says bread, but it's not bread. It's like a bread food product. It's squishy, it's weird, and it lasts two weeks. Bread doesn't last two weeks. Same thing happened to beer, right? Like we took the human aspect out of it. And I think breweries are kind of like putting the human aspect back into it, kind of puts a face to it. Because like we as people like to know the person who is making the stuff. Like that's just how we are. I want to talk to, you know, the cook who's making my lunch. And like, I want to talk to like, you know, the bartender who's mixing my drink because they know more than I do. And I want to learn about it. Right. Absolutely. Like you said, there, there's an element of humanization to it because, you know, we're we're also alienated by uh, sliced bread. Being able to to go back and just like get a growler and you get to sit and you get to pick through the fun names and, you know, uh, the, the bartender is just like, oh, have you ever had a sour? You know, it's, it's super compelling. You know, I, I think about how my mom was a total teetotaler and kind of had like a very... You know, just, just a very Christian attitude around sort of like anything that could fuck you up in any way. But getting like totally ensorcelled at the like local brewery because it's all stuff made in North Carolina. And she gets to be charmed by the bartender who's, you know, 
being like very chastely old lady flirting with her, that sort of thing. It's really like night and day with that experience, right? It's it's very much like, oh, I I didn't realize it could be this much more enriching. It's it's still great to sit and have a, a case of Bud Light with your buds, but it's like that extra level of connection with other people. The people there give a shit, and you can feel that even through kind of like the filtering of the the marketing and you know the need to stay afloat and that that sort of thing like you said like we love what we're doing even when we are in a bad job we love fucking beer like anybody who works around beer that's all they think about you know it used to be a joke like brianne loved telling the story that i like i'd work a 12-hour day at a brewery and then i come home and i'm like watching brewing youtube videos or I'm reading a <laughs> book about brewing or she like wakes up in bed and i'm reading like a 120 page like <laughs> college article about yeast strains like yeah it's all it's, it's all i fucking think about this is what i love to do and i hope that like when i make the stuff there is a little bit of that love in that and like that comes across you know i think it absolutely and, does the, you know, the general premise of the podcast is that the world sucks and we are yearning to, to go back to that interconnectedness. And you, you see that like drop of love in something like a craft brew that is, you know, competitively priced, especially now, uh, at least here in America, with something like, like Bud Light. You know, that was usually my go-to beer, but they like the price is like $5 more now. So it's just like either I just, you know, get something at the liquor store or I get Bush. And you know, nobody nobody likes that. We're getting to the end here. It's kind of, it's kind of a kindergartner question, but this is a kindergartner question podcast. You know, uh, I th I think we both can agree that the world is dog shit, but one of the few things that busts through is you know, the good times that we have with our friends. And of course, it's totally cool if, if alcohol or anything like that isn't a part of that. Of course, it's not a requirement. But the reality is, is just like having beers with your buds fucking rips in a way that, that pierces all that. And I'm curious to, to your thoughts about sort of the, the, the camaraderie around beer drinking. The, the very, the very simple is beer is fun, friends are fun, like, if I was in a more professional like context, that's what I would say. But I do think that there is something like ancient Egypt had a beer industry with beer ads. We stopped being hunters and gatherers because we liked making beer and having festivals and getting fucked up. There is something genetic in people that's like, I want to drink some beer with my homies. You know, maybe this is, again, like very hippy dippy of me. Maybe this is like genetic memory or something, but it's like, I want to have a cold beer, hang out with the people I like and I love, and fucking drink a lot. We've been doing it for 10,000 years, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, you know, certainly you can get extremely beer drunk, but it is usually tempered enough that there, there's a bit more of a pacing to it. It could still be, you know, an icebreaker. It can be as simple enough sometimes as an excuse to, to just be like, oh, I don't know you know, what format I'm going to hang out with my friends. I'm so tired. You know, how to articulate that. All you can say is just like, you, you want to grab a beer. And that's like a, opens the gates wide. 
I, I I had an experience in my last job because I was the head brewer and bartender. There was this guy, he's a farmer, like a hobbyist, and he picked up our grain and he would feed it after it was spent and he'd feed it to the cows. Like, that's how we kept, you know, we weren't wasting grain. It was like going to a local farmer and he was feeding it to his cows and, you know, those cows get turned to people food eventually, but cool little circular thing. He loved our beer. He loved our beer. And I made um, an IPA that he just thought was the fucking cat's ass. Like, he loved it. So he comes in, and he's like, I want an IPA. So I give him an IPA, and he goes to pay. And I was like, no, no, your, your money's not good here. And he goes, okay, but my son is meeting me in an hour. He just turned 19. You have to let me pay for the round when he's here. And I was like, okay. His 19-year-old son shows up, and this is the first beer they've ever had together. It's a beer I've made. You know, I'm participating. Matt's here too. I'm participating in this. And like, I'm thinking, shit, I remember the first beer I had with my dad. I remember what we talked about. I remember the weather. I remember every single detail. You know, that is unreal. You know, it was Rainier beer. It was shit beer, like, that I had with my dad. But now it's like something that was made by me. It's like, I'm part of this experience and, you know, people have, you know, a bachelor party or a wedding or whatever, and they're pounding beer I made. And like, I feels like I'm part of it. And, you know, like I'm, I get to be part of the bad days too. When like someone has a shit day, they get to get blasted on, you know, something I made, or they wake up with a splitting hangover because of something I made. That's really cool to me. I, I feel very fortunate that I get to participate in a lot of people's lives like that. That's awesome. I think that's a good story, a good note to end on. All right, Matt, any any final thoughts about beer brewing, life in general, finding good and joy in this bad world before we sign off? There's this um, book, and it's basically like the, um, it's considered like the golden standard for when you're starting off and home brewing. I can't remember the name of it, but a term he throws around, it's an acronym. I can't remember the acronym, but it off the top of my head if i stop, stopped and thought about it i could but it's um basically means stop relax have a homebrew just something goes sideways take a deep breath have a beer realize that things aren't as bad as they seem and you know that's something that i think is true for beer and i think that's true for life things can get bad just like stop have a beer take a breath because things can also get really good I'm living proof of that. I I was fucking miserable doing what I was doing. And, you know, like I stumbled, like I don't post anymore because I don't have that, you know, misery inside of me. As a poster, that's the ultimate success story. Um, I, I assume uh, since you're not posting anymore, uh, you won't have too much to, to add. But is there anywhere people can find you? to rant about beer, anything like that, anything you'd like to plug, just a, a great beer you'd like to tell people to have, go off, King. Um, I'm going to re or make my Twitter unprivate to promote this. Um, so at normal underscore Matt on Twitter. Um, Makes me laugh there, every time. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got, uh, from there, I'll be plugging my Blue Sky, which, you know, like that website moves very slow and that's kind of my speed. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be using my Twitter for the next couple weeks to promote this. And then from there, it's going to be a Discord where I will have a beer brewing channel. So if you have questions about making beer, I'm here for you. This is the golden age of home brewing. I would like to ask you before you go, 
Do you have a go-to if somebody wants to start brewing beer as a hobbyist? You know, what's what's the normal mat advice for uh, delving in with both feet? We live in the golden age of homebrewing. There's no really wrong answer. If you want to make a lager, it's never been easier to make a lager. I would suggest going for Kvike. That's uh, the Norwegian yeast that ferments really fast. So then you can like, you know, you're making beer on Monday to drink on Saturday. Hell yeah. But just like whatever you like and just like learn the processes and, you know, like you're now in a unique position because like homebrewers, like the technology and technique has caught up to commercial brewers. You can theoretically, because you're not constrained by anything that a commercial brewery is constrained by, you can go off the wall and make some wild shit. Like I had a friend who made um, a beer with the bacteria you would use to... um like the moldy rice you would use to make sake. Yeah. He made a beer with that and it was phenomenal. It's awesome. And like home brewers are getting to the point because they don't have the same constraints. There are home brewers out there who are making beer that is better than commercial beer. Cause they didn't, yeah. Fucking hundred dollars worth of fruit and like a five gallon batch. Why not? What I would say to anyone who's starting out in home brewing, stick with it until you hit that point where just a propist of nothing a friend drinks it and says, wow, if I like bought this in a liquor store in a bar, I would be really happy. This is like, they just taste like commercial beer. Because if you get that feedback and it feels like you just did heroin, mm-hmm. then you're, I, I will see you in the brew house in six months. You're, you're headed in one direction. Thank you so much for your time. This was really cool to, to listen to. I really appreciate your, your, your knowledge and insight. You can find your podcast wherever you download your shit. Also, we're on Twitter at Existential Wars, W-A-R-S, and on Blue Sky at Existential Warfare. And you can find me, Reese Ryder, at Reese V. Ryder at Twitter.com, and also Reese V. Ryder on Blue Sky, or check out my link tree, which is just Reese Ryder. Thanks again, and uh, goodbye, everybody, later on. Down the drain, another storm is coming today. Sounds the same, we're barely living, baiting away. Not a thing left to grow, and it doesn't look the sandy planet's ways. In the end, our fate is fading, our real dead. Surprise again, we're hitting bottom lower, and then a star came up for us, but no, we couldn't touch the sandy planet. Now we're staying